Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they returned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And I pray, Father, that you might uh, clear away any cobwebs or stones in our hearts or our minds that we might hear it clearly. I pray that you would sharpen my stammering tongue. Would you put your words in my mouth? Would you allow us all to meditate on your word? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God gives second chances. Peter had turned his back on the Lord Jesus Christ. He had even denied him three times. But as an act of mercy, after his resurrection, Jesus restored Peter and commissioned him to be an apostle of his church. The Pharisee Saul was a zealous persecutor of the Lord's church, a man who would eventually call himself the chief of sinners. And yet, as an act of mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a blinding light and commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, even the apostle Paul. And Jonah, as we saw in chapter 1, was a disobedient prophet. He refused to accept the Lord's call, and he fled from the presence of the Lord. And yet, in an act of mercy... God pursued after him with a great storm. He pursued after him with his grace by appointing a fish to swallow him and to save him from death. And in the belly of that fish, what we saw last week, or what we heard from Jonah's lips was, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah had returned to the Lord. And the Lord returned Jonah to the land of Israel as the fish vomited Jonah onto dry ground. But you might remember from chapter 1 that what we said was that the the prophet effectively attempted to uh, renounce his his commission as a prophet of the Lord. He disobeyed. He uh, didn't want to follow what the Lord called him to do. But God gives second chances. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, a second time, saying, Arise, 
go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. With almost identical language from the beginning of chapter 1, the Lord recommissioned Jonah in his position as prophet with the same calling to go to Nineveh. This time he added something more. He said, call out against it the message that I will tell you. Jonah, I will put my words in your mouth. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to give them my message. That is exactly what you should speak. Now, the book of Jonah is this wonderful story of God's compassion and mercy upon the most undeserving of people. In chapter 1, we saw God's mercy towards those pagan sailors that Jonah uh, was in contact with. In chapter 2, we saw God's compassion and mercy upon the prophet Jonah himself. And in chapter 3, we will see God's compassion and mercy towards even the people of Nineveh, this wicked city. But chapter 3 has also got some important things to teach us about repentance. Repentance, we talk about repentance in our time of confession of sin. It is the Hebrew the sense of repentance was a turning to the Lord, turning from our wickedness and turning to the Lord. It's this notion of turning or returning or a change of mind. And Jonah had originally fled. He wanted to disobey, but he returned to the Lord, and the Lord returned him to his position as a prophet in, in Israel. What we'll see in this chapter is that it's actually the people of Nineveh who turn from their wickedness and receive God's mercy. Um, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to see in this chapter, what we need to hear is that when people repent of their sin, God relents of the judgment that he says he will bring. God relents when people repent. And we'll see this as we go through this, this story, um, focusing on this aspect of repentance under three simple headings. First, the, the cause of the repentance. Secondly, the evidence of that repentance. And finally, the result of that repentance. And we'll end with uh, some brief applications uh, of these things. So first we'll talk about the cause of the repentance. The people of Nineveh repented as a result of hearing God's word, hearing God's message. Um, Jonah arose to go to Nineveh, this, this great city, the city that was important to the Lord. And the text says that it was a, uh, a great city, three days journey in breadth. Now, to the original hearers, this was not a, a specific measurement. This was more of a ballpark figure, as if to say, a very large city, very large city. And in contrast to the three days journey, Jonah didn't have to travel very far into the city, just one day's journey, and he called out the Lord's message as given to him. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, no doubt Jonah was happy. He was pleased to be able to give this message to Nineveh because Nineveh was the enemy of God's people and he was proclaiming a message that he believed of judgment because Jonah and the original hearers would have known that that word that the Lord used, overthrown, is the same word that was used in the book of Genesis with respect to 
the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities that God completely destroyed as a result of their wickedness. And so he was proclaiming that this overthrowing, this destruction would happen, or so he thought. But the Lord was also using Jonah to unwittingly bring a message of hope. We know this for two things. For one thing, uh, what was different from Nineveh, from Sodom and Gomorrah, is that the Lord never told Sodom and Gomorrah that he was going to destroy them. He had spoken with Abraham, and he told Abraham what he was going to do, but the people of Sodom and Gomorrah never heard that message. And a message of judgment is a warning. Judgment is coming. Destruction is coming unless, there is an implied unless, you turn and, and repent. The Lord was sending Jonah to Nineveh with that message, with extending the hope of God relenting. But secondly, that the word itself for um, this overthrow, it, most of our English translations do translate it overthrow, but it perhaps more um, literally could be translated overturn or turn over. Many commentators think that there's an ambiguity in this word itself, as if to say, remember that repentance is a turning or a returning to the Lord, as if to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned, either overturned in destruction or turned over in repentance. And so through Jonah, God was extending the message of hope. And beloved, uh, true repentance comes from hearing God's word. Clearly, clearly hearing God's word, his message. And all of us, and particularly and especially preachers of the word, must speak what God says, his word. It is his word that is living and active and powerful. It is his word that can convict sin and extend the hope of the gospel. And God's word, beloved, has severe threatenings, severe threatenings. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says, the wages of sin is death. It says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he shall strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The coming one is coming and will not delay. But God warns to extend hope, the hope of the gospel. And he also does so with compassion because he says, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Today, he says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's mercy. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Beloved, when God speaks, and he speaks through his word, we must listen. He speaks to us out of his compassion and his love and his mercy to us. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And what's more, another thing we need to see is that it wasn't because of Jonah's eloquence or wise speech 
that the people repented. It was a plain statement, uttering God's word clearly. Um, O. Palmer Robertson put it well. He said this. He said, it was not the force of the argument presented by the prophet that moved the people. It was the power of God's truth that pierced the heart. Never rely on your own persuasive powers as a way to save sinners. Never, never wait until you have confidence in yourself to speak up for Christ. It is God and his truth that people believe. You must remain only the instrument. Only the instrument. And so was Jonah. But it wasn't just the message of the Lord. The Lord also had a sign. There was a sign. So throughout Scripture, um, the Lord would use signs as a means of validating or authenticating the spoken message. And um, the passage we read from Matthew, the scribes and the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, give us a sign to validate that you are really from God. And he said, well, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He said, well, for just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That's your sign. Jonah himself was a sign to the people of Nineveh, authenticating or validating the Lord's message. Jonah had been three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. What that sign actually entailed, we speculate Some commentators speculate because he was in the fish for three days and three nights. Perhaps the fish's digestive juices affected his appearance, perhaps bleaching his skin or his hair or his clothing. And they saw a visible sign. Perhaps they just knew of his his story, that he had been in a fish. And that that was evidence that he was coming on behalf of the Lord. But he himself was the sign authenticating the message. And beloved, we have been given the true sign of Jonah, even the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jonah was just in a fish for three days and three nights, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ who was dead for three days and three nights, buried in a grave. And God raised him from the dead and presented him to witnesses as evidence that his message of judgment and mercy is true. We must believe in the message as given to us. Well, the Ninevites, they heard the message. They had this sign of Jonah, and they believed God. They had, and we see evidence of their repentance. We see evidence from the people and from the leadership. It says that they, um, this message had come from Jonah, and yet the, the message says, or the, the word says that, Verse 5, the people believed God. They knew that the message was from God himself. And as a result, they humbled themselves. They took action. It says that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Kids, if you don't know what those things are, a fast is uh, when you stop eating things or drinking things as a means of trying to deny yourself, show that you are... uh, Humble. Same thing with sackcloth. It was a sackcloth was a, a coarse or a rough 
type of clothing that they would put on instead of their normal clothes to kind of punish their bodies in a sense or to show that they were, they were humble. And they, put, they did these things as evidence of their, uh, their recognition of what was going on. And they did, and it was all of them that did it, from the, from the greatest of them to the least of them, it says. And the word even reached the king. It reached to, to the, the leader of this city. And like the people who had put on sackcloth, he also did that same thing. We almost get this slow motion, step-by-step story of picture of the, of the king doing this. He, he was on his throne. He arose from his throne, it says, took off his robe, he put on the sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes. Sackcloth and ashes is a picture of his own repentance. And the people had called for a fast, and he proclaims a fast, a, an extreme fast. It's extreme in its uh, application, in, in who it applies to. It wasn't just the people of Nineveh. It was the, the people, the beasts, the herds, the flocks, the people and the animals, everyone fast. And it was extreme in its scope. You know, normally you would proclaim a fast, it would just be food. But he says, uh, let them not feed or drink water. It was a almost absolute fast. Let's humble ourselves as much as we possibly can. And he exhorts the people to call out, cry out for mercy. He says, let everyone, uh, let them call out mightily to God. Ask the Lord for mercy. If there was a hope for mercy, let's ask for it. And finally, he calls them to repent. Repent in heart and repent in works. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Turn in their hearts, their heart attitudes, the wickedness of their hearts, and from the violence in his hands. Our hearts fuel our words and our actions, and he's saying, repent in heart and action. And beloved, these are elements of true repentance. When we, when we talk about repentance, turning from sin, it, it involves these things. It begins by believing God, believing God's word is true when he says, this is sin, and it offends my character. It means hearing that, hearing that judgment is coming apart from the grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. It also involves a, a, hum, a humbling of ourselves to admit our wrongdoing, to confess with our words, and to cry out for mercy. God is merciful, and he calls us to cry out for mercy. We, have, we ought to have that uh, impulse to say, I recognize what I've done, Lord. Please forgive me. And finally, there's this repentance, this turning from and turning to in heart and action. Those are elements of repentance that must be there. And the Ninevites repented. They did these things on the hope of God's mercy. You see what the king says in verse 9. He says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. They, he, they recognized that it was because of their wickedness that God's fierce anger was aroused. And they're clinging to the hope 
that perhaps God would relent. If they turn from their evil, maybe God would turn from his disaster. Beloved, this response is remarkable, isn't it? Because isn't it true that most people, maybe even most of us, would often deny, well, certainly unbelievers would deny God's authority over their lives, or that God is even paying attention, or that he cares, uh, or, or we make justifications, or um, or whatever it may be, our response, but rarely do we recognize that God's anger, his fierce anger, is aroused as a result of what is in our hearts and what we have done. But beloved, what we need... What, what you need to understand is that God sees our sin, the sin of our heart and the sin of our hands and our words, and it arouses his holy anger. It, it, uh, it violates his honor, and it harms us. And Nineveh, saw this anger of the Lord and they knew that their lives were at stake and they cried out for mercy. And beloved, what what do you think God really thinks about your sin? Do you think that he just kind of winks at it or just kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, yeah, yeah, he, he confesses the same thing every single week. Or, you know, it's, it's maybe maybe he buys, maybe you think he buys our justifications or our excuses God's, God's word says is that he hates sin. His anger is provoked mightily as a result of our sin. But beloved, here's the good news. His heart is still for you as much as his burning wrath pours out and is pointed at your sin. His heart is still for you. He does not define you by your sin because you are not defined by your sin. He hates your sin, but his compassion and grace and mercy is directed towards you. It, it is lavished on you. And he loves you. He's turned towards you in mercy. And we, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see those two realities at play. Because the anger and the wrath that, was, that God has toward our sin He took our sin and made Jesus Christ our sin. He put our sins on him, and he poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. So that, as Jesus absorbed God's death blows on our behalf, God could forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to himself, and we would have peace with the Almighty God. That his love is for us. He now says, I remember your sins no more. What had stirred me to wrath, I have poured out in my son. And we have peace with God. But beloved, that that hope, that truth is only for us who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're not in Christ Jesus, if you don't know Christ, what you need to hear is that God's fierce anger still rests upon you until the point where he pours it out 
in his, the fullness of his wrath at judgment unless you repent, unless you turn to Christ and hide yourself in him, he who took the penalty for you and for me. And beloved, the Ninevites, they turned in fear and just, uh, the hope of mercy and the result was glorious. God relented from his anger. So verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. When the Ninevites turned from their evil, God relented from the disaster he would bring. God is moved to compassion when people repent, beloved. And if that is true for wicked Nineveh, how wonderfully true is that for you and for me? We who have been forgiven of our sins, who have been clothed with his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to talk about this relenting of the Lord. There are, there are some people who look at that and they deny what we would call the immutability of God. That is, they would say, well, clearly God changes. There are, there are some passages in Scripture that confuse people into thinking that God somehow changes his character. Like when, when God was talking to Noah and he said, I, have, I regret that I have made man because of their wickedness. And here where God relents over the disaster that I have brought, obviously he changes they say. But God himself says, no, I do not change. I do not change. To the prophet Malachi, he said, um, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. And to the prophet Balaam, in the book of Numbers, Balaam said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he, not, has he said something and will he not do it? Yet here, God said something, and he did not do it. So how do we handle that? Well, beloved, God is not fickle. God does not change. His eternal purposes stand, and he works out all of his holy will. But what we, understand, what we need to understand is that in some circumstances, God, the way God deals with mankind is in accordance with how mankind deals with God. And God said that he would do that. That's what he said in Jeremiah chapter 18, which we read in one of our reading passages. He said, if I declare something concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up or break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent or disaster, of the disaster that I intended to do. God said beforehand, this is how I'm going to respond if you respond accordingly. God God's eternal purpose was to declare judgment to Nineveh. God's eternal purpose was that Nineveh would hear that message and respond with repentance. And his eternal purpose was to relent from that disaster and show mercy and patience. But beloved, what, what you also need to understand is that because God showed mercy and patience to Nineveh does not mean that he forgave them of this sin. This was not necessarily their salvation. God relented from his anger. He relented. He held off. He delayed his anger. 
How do we know this? How do we know that this was not saving? Well, a few different things. There, there was a difference between how the pagan sailors in chapter 1 acted and how these Ninevites responded in chapter 3. In, in, in chapter 1, the Ninevites called upon Yahweh, the covenant name of our God. There is no other name in heaven or on earth, by which man ought to be saved. Salvation and forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation for those who are members of his gracious covenant. Those pagan sailors knew of Yahweh, presumably by Jonah and his conversations with them, but they cried out to Yahweh. These Ninevites, they only call out to the God. The God is the language in the the Hebrew. But that's not true saving repentance. We, we, it's, we, we must be crying out to the one true and living God, not a God. There is only one name under heaven by which man ought to be saved. But also we know because their repentance didn't last. They returned to their wickedness. Nineveh was a great city in Assyria, and just a short time after this story, Their fierce anger, the Ninevites, the Assyrians' fierce anger was aroused and they marched upon the people of Israel and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They were were judged because of their wickedness and yet their wickedness resumed so much so that the prophet Nahum, another one of our minor prophets, he proclaims, and if you read that this, this, uh, this Lord's Day afternoon, you can see he proclaimed the total destruction of Nineveh. They were ultimately destroyed. And yet what God did was he relented. He held off. He was patient to them as a result of their repentance until which time they turned to the Lord for salvation. And yet they never did. They never did ultimately turn to him. But Beloved, what wonderful news that is for you and for me. Because... For one thing, God is just, and God is true to his promises that there is no other name under heaven by which man ought to be saved. But if God is patient and merciful, even to his objects of wrath, even to his enemies, how abundantly compassionate and merciful and patient is he for you and for me? If that was true for Nineveh, how true is that for us who are in Christ. In fact, that's what, what our, the hope of our salvation is based upon the fact that God is so abundantly patient with us. And that's what the Apostle Paul told Timothy in, about himself in the book of 1 Timothy. Let me, let me just read what he, he said to Timothy. He said, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Beloved, it is because of God's patient mercy that we still exist and that we know of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, know that God is graciously being patient, urging you to repent and to turn to the Lord so that you might not be destroyed. And for us who are in Christ Jesus, it is only because in our ignorance, God was patiently merciful, enduring our sins until which time we saw the beauty of Christ, repented of those sins, and found refuge in him. But what's more, beloved, is that in Christ Jesus, God is not merely patient. We are forgiven. God's not sitting there wringing his hands just frustrated with our sins. Yes, you and I continue to sin, but in Christ Jesus, he has forgiven them, which means he has, he has chosen in his wisdom never to think about them ever again. He has, he, has, he has dealt with them in his son, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. He has, he has welcomed us into his family, and he has promised to lavish upon us grace upon grace for all eternity, every spiritual blessing. There's no condemnation for us. His heart is only love and acceptance for us in Jesus Christ. It is, it is wonderful. But beloved, here, here's, here's where it comes down to us. If we have a heavenly father who has loved us with this kind of com- compassion and mercy and has been this patient with us, and he, he, this is the way that he treats his enemies, and we are now sons and daughters of the almighty God, how can we do anything less? How can our hearts not be drawn to this kind of mercy, to reflect this kind of mercy? And isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ said? He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And I I think when we think about this passage from Jonah, there's three practical ways that we we can see that work out. And the first is, We must show mercy to those who repent even when it's imperfect. Even when it's imperfect repentance. Sometimes there is heartfelt repentance like what Nineveh had that is imperfect or incomplete repentance. Our heart's disposition, our our heart's bent should be like our Heavenly Father's to show mercy, ready to show compassion and love on those who are there. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That's the first thing, have a heart orientation towards mercy and patience. The second is though, we should not be satisfied with incomplete repentance. Not be satisfied with it. Because the Ninevites were not, they did not find that true forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We ought to not be satisfied with incomplete repentance. We need to urge those. You know, it's beyond, repent, true repentance is beyond just a confession, but a, a sorrow and a regret for sin, but not just a sorrow, but a turning from and a turning to of heart and action. And it's, but it's not just an outward change. It's, a, it's an inward change as we turn from our sins to Christ Jesus 
for forgiveness and the godliness that only he can provide. And then leading, which leads to forgiveness and reconciliation between one another. We, we must be merciful, but true mercy doesn't stop at an outward repentance, but drives to complete peace in Jesus Christ and with one another. The last third thing is we must forgive as the Lord forgives us. True repentance will result in a request, a desire for forgiveness, because there's nothing that can be truly done over what happened. The only way that can truly be peace is for forgiveness. But God, who has forgiven us of great (laughs) transgressions and sins, calls us to forgive of things that are much lesser as despite how difficult or how hard they have been for us they are lesser compared to what we have done to our God we must forgive as the Lord forgave us in the book of Exodus Exodus chapter 34 Moses was meeting with the almighty God on the top of Mount Sinai and the Lord descended on the mountain and he of all things, declared his name to Moses. He wanted his name to be known. And this is what he said his name was. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Beloved, our God wanted us to know that is who he is. That is his name. That is his character. And this love and this mercy, this grace, this patience, all of these things are ours only in his son, Jesus Christ. The pure, blameless, and innocent one was made guilty so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made righteous. Beloved, receive the mercy and love of our God in Jesus Christ and be merciful even as you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you reveal your merciful character and we ask you to forgive our hard hearts. Would you help us to be soft-hearted, to love with this love, to be compassionate on those who are as undeserving as we were to receive your compassion. Help us to be merciful like you are and help us to love you with, uh, in response to that steadfast love you've shown us in Jesus Christ. Oh, you are wonderful and you are gracious and we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.